Give me a go, no go for launch. Just when you think you're out, they pull you back in. I was gonna say something that was not true. I, I don't know why we do these. Let's make film history. We are go for launch. Welcome back, everybody, to the Almost Sideways podcast. We're so glad you're joining us. This is episode 88. Uh, we are recording Sunday, August 16th at 3 o'clock Pacific time. I'm your host, Terry Plucknett. Joining me, Todd Plucknett and Zach Saltz. Uh, Zach, how awesome was that Blazer game yesterday? Uh, it was pretty awesome because, you know, when the, when the listeners are listening to this, we're going to be talking, you know, we're, we're of course referring to, uh, the Blazers being the Lakers in game one of their, uh, Western Conference, uh, divisional round, right? That's what you're talking about, right? When, uh, they, they beat the Lakers by 40 points. Yeah, yeah, that's what I'm talking about. Yeah, not, not the playing game that happened yesterday, but, uh, (laughs) that playing game was intense though, man. Dame Lillard's insane. As I texted you, I, a part of me was rooting for the Grizzlies because I wanted to see that matchup again. But uh, of course, um, you, you, can, you know it's it's hard as a sports fan to do that. But it would it, it would be fun to just watch a a, a turn a, a playoff series between those two teams. Yeah, Screw the Lakers. Jaw, Jaw, and uh, Dame going back and forth. <laughs> yeah, that was that was pretty intense. That was pretty intense. Uh, uh, Todd, what's, uh, what's your reaction to no Big Ten football the, or Pac-12 football this year? I mean, it sucks. I, <laughs> I don't know. I mean, it's, it's completely ridiculous, too, because all the students are going to be on campus, too, for classes in, the, in those states. Like, I, I don't know. It, it makes no sense. They completely uh, missed the boat on that one. Kevin Warren's in way over his head. In, in year one of his tenure, he's already completely screwed up the conference, and it's going to take years for them to recover. But, you know, it is what it is, I guess. <laughs> yeah, I, li- I like the arguments of, all right, they're going to be on campus anyways, so why not have them have football where they, you know, have medical checks daily by a, by the football medical team and, you know, have, you know, incentive of staying safe? It, it makes a little bit more sense. Yeah, well, and what makes it worse is Kevin Warren's son plays for Mississippi State, and he's going to allow him to play, so... There you go. <laughs> if that's not corruption and incompetence, then I don't know what is. Uh, that this is a whole other topic that we can talk about another time. But that's not what we're here to talk about. We're here to talk about movies. Um, what movies there are out there right now. Uh, but first, Zach, what are you drinking? I am drinking from uh, Goose, or excuse me, the Goose Island Beer Company. Their uh, IPA, India Pale Ale, which comes in a green can, green like uh, the former Seattle basketball team. Which we'll be talking about a little bit later today, oh, and dude, um, blow. Uh, it's a it, it's it's a it's bittersweet. All right, Todd, what do you got? Uh, I'm drinking a margarita. Uh, it's not a homemade margarita. It's actually like a daiquiri mix that I put some reposado hornitos tequila in, but it's pretty good. I got some frozen fruit in there for the ice. So nice. That's like the same thing that Adam drank yesterday. Like he drank a margarita mix yesterday. So. Uh, yesterday, I, w- I was on the Daily Notes podcast, our Daily Notes series, a part of our podcast with Adam. We geeked out over Seattle Mariners baseball. And yeah, he drank, he drank a margarita mix, so. Great minds think alike. following who, Todd? Well, he was drinking one that, that already had the alcohol in it, which is basically oh. no alcohol at all. 
Well, at least he had alcohol. I didn't have alcohol yesterday, but I do today. Today I have, uh, this is 10 Barrel Brewing out of Bend, Oregon. This is their Profuse Juice Hazy IPA. So, I thought that was a cool name, Profuse Juice. And 10 Barrel is always good beer, so. So there you go. All right. Well, let's uh, start talking about what we've been watching. Uh, Zach, you're first. What'd you watch this week? Okay, so uh, I watched a movie out of France called Gilles' Wife, or Gilles' Wife, and it's directed by Frédéric uh, Fontierny, I think, is the name. And this is a movie from 2004. Uh, the French title is La Femme de Gilles. And it's about, uh, it takes place in France in the early 1930s in this kind of industrial, I think, coal mining community. And it stars Emmanuel DeVos as Eliza, who is um, married to this brutish, um, really kind of, you know, asshole guy named Gilles, hence she is Gilles' wife, and together they have young twin daughters, and it becomes apparent pretty early on, um, besides the fact that Eliza is unhappy in her marriage, that uh, Gilles is uh, cheating on her, and he's not just cheating on her, but but having an affair with Eliza's sister, whose name is Victoline. And so um, the movie sort of shows the emotional turbulence of her reaction to finding uh, that out. Um, but ultimately, in order to kind of save face and save her family amidst a very patriarchal and oppressive system that mistreats, uh, housewives, um, the Eliza character basically kind of goes along with Giles's philandering with, with, uh, her sister. Um, this is a movie that I think has a pretty strong feminist agenda to it, and it kind of shows how this character, uh, again, has to suffer um, and remain silent in order to protect her family and her economic well-being, because Gilles is the provider. It's a pretty good portrait of domestic life in France in the early 1930s. Definitely has a slow pace to it, um, and it does kind of feel, feel bucolic in a way. It reminded me of uh, the, the, the Renoir film that came out a few years ago out of France, and... Um, the performance is really good. The main performance in the movie is really good by Emmanuel DeVos. Um, it's a sort of a great, nice, pretentious movie that uh, sticks its nose at the bourgeoisie and also has, I think, a good feminist agenda. So I give it three stars. If you're interested in that nice, pretentious French art entertainment, uh, check it out on Canopy. Nice. Nice. All right. Todd, what did you watch? Uh... So I'm, I was going to try to start my own little series thing on this. Uh, so I think what I'm going to try to do every week is watch a bad Nicolas Cage movie that I haven't seen. Uh, because they're all streaming. And he, there's <laughs> I've seen 57 of the 98 movies that he's made. So I, I, I got a good 40 that I can make up. And so this week I watched Vengeance, A Love Story from 2017. And where Nicolas Cage plays a cop who connects with this girl who gets like brutally gang raped and left for dead and the rapists are going to end up getting uh getting away pretty much with no time in prison so he decides to take matters into his own hands and uh become a vigilante killer and uh i actually would kind of like to see more of this character i mean all the acting in the movie is pretty bad uh like but Nicolas Cage uh, does give a, an interesting performance in this. Uh, the only other famous actors in it are, like, Don Johnson and Deborah Kara Unger. I have no idea where she's been in, like, the last, like, 20 years. But, uh, yeah, they're, they're terrible. Um, the movie is interesting, though, because this movie had been kicked around for, like, 12 years, supposedly. And he, Nicolas Cage was uh, uh, supposed to direct it at one point. 
which he's only directed one movie, and it was actually a really good underrated movie called Sunny. But he he instead let let his like go to stunt coordinator direct it, and you can kind of tell that it's a it's kind of shot like I mean it it looks really good, but it's also like really sketchily shot. But honestly, the movie's not that bad. I give it two and a half stars, and I was really surprised. It's actually written by one of the Mankiewiczes, so which it also gives it a, a a little bit of cachet. But I don't know. It's it's a <laughs> Yeah, not, it's not terrible. I think it was on, like, Epics or something that I watched it on. But yeah, Vengeance, a love story, a terrible title, and a decent-ish movie. Nice. I love the new series. This is going to be fun. This is going to be fun. Can I be a guest on the de- the Deadfall episode, please? <laughs> I've already seen that. Yeah, he's only seen ones he's never seen before. Oh, okay. I'm going to try and watch all 98 of his movies. <laughs> all right, well, the movie I watched this week... Um, in my anniversary watches, this was nominated for an Oscar, one Oscar 20 years ago. It didn't win, but it was nominated for Best Foreign Film out of Mexico. It is Alejandro Gonzalez and Yaratu's Amores Peros, which I had never seen before. Uh, and this movie was just absolutely incredible. It's going to be in my, in my top 10 of 2001, because it didn't get released in America until 2001. But it follows a host of different characters, three different storylines that all kind of come together in this horrific automobile accident on the, um, just like in the, at a street intersection. Uh, Gail Garcia Bernal is one of the main characters. This is kind of his big breakout where everyone noticed who he was. Um, you had, uh, Goya Toledo, Emilio Echeverria, um, just, I, I mean, it's kind of hard to describe the movie with much further than that. There's there's some pretty horrific dogfighting scenes in it. Um, there's a there's a lot of hunting for a dog in floorboards. Um, there it it's it's a crazy movie. Um, I can see how after making this, he went on five six years later to do Babel because I think they're kind of very similar of the interlocking storylines and the kind of episodic feel to it um I think I might actually like Amoris Peros more than Babel it's been a while since I've seen Babel but I'll I'll have to go back and watch it now but uh three and a half star movie it th- this was an incredible watch and I was I was glued to uh to what was going on and it, it was I will say though it's two and a half hour movie and it feels every bit of those two and a half hours. But you really don't care because it's such an engaging story. Yeah, that's a great movie. It's, it's in my top five of 2001. I, I kind of stand by that being uh, Inyarti's best movie, too. And it was his first one, and which is which is saying something. It is, is a great movie. Well, it's so weird, too, because he set a tone for himself in that decade. From, you know, through Morris Perros, 21 Grams, Babel, even through Beautiful... And then he just blew that tone and that what he had created for himself out of the water by back-to-back years doing doing Birdman and The Revenant and did something completely different. And that's so. what wins Oscars, I guess. Yeah, well, and I I mean, I it, he's definitely made himself someone to always watch, and I'm glad that this was the, like the one, one movie of his I hadn't seen yet, so I'm glad I, I caught that one. It's a classic, and and I feel I, I feel like it had a pretty big influence over uh, movies in the two thousands because the sole like hyperlink structure of it 
became really passe by the end of the decade of the 2000s. But when Amoris Peros came out, it was still pretty novel what Inyaritu was doing. And um, it, I actually think it holds up pretty well. And I would agree with Todd that it's maybe his best film. And uh, I think a, a movie that a lot of filmmakers of this generation have watched and admired and maybe replicated. Yeah, yeah, it, it, it was great. It was great. I love the, the, the old man. Was it um, Emilio Echeverria? Yep. That was my favorite character. He's awesome. He was awesome. I always find uh, it weird the movies that still go by their foreign uh, their foreign title and, and don't ever get the English translation like circulated yeah. anywhere. It's it's weird which which ones they choose. Like this one's obvious because there's a semi curse word in the title, but yeah. <laughs> uh, but like Itumama Tamien and and whatnot. Like, I got it's it's always weird which ones they choose to do that with. It's true. It's true. All right. So uh, let's move on from that, move into our featured review. And our featured review is a brand new Netflix film that just came out this weekend, Project Power. Welcome to Project Power. Our goal is simple. The next evolution of the human species. You ever taken one of those before? It can make you strong. make you invisible. You never know what your power is until you try it. Push that power, don't you? Yeah. On the streets, they're talking about superpowers, but they're not talking about how one hit could kill you. Todd, tell us all about it and what you thought. Uh, okay, it is directed by Henry Joost and Ariel Schulman, and it is about uh, this new pill that gets introduced on the black market, which makes you some form of superhuman for exactly five minutes, or you blow up. Uh, the movie takes place in New Orleans, which isn't obvious, except for the fact that Joseph Gordon-Levitt was wearing this Steve Gleason jersey throughout the whole movie, randomly. But, uh, <laughs> he plays a cop, and he is teamed up with this, like, teenage drug dealer, played by Dominique Fishback, and Jamie Foxx, who is playing the role that he always plays now, and they're, like, trying to find the manufacturers of the drug. Uh, the guys who directed it are the ones that directed Catfish and couple of paranormal activity sequels but their 2016 movie nerve which is a decent movie is probably its closest relative in terms of vibe and look and like pace uh the colors like really pop on screen in this movie and, and it doesn't use any of the shaky cam found footage kind of thing the writer is a like a first time writer i think uh matt's mattson tomlin is the writer um but to me at this point all joe's gordon levitt movies are kind of the same it could be argued that this movie has a lot in common with premium rush uh, his performance is okay, but it's exactly what you would expect. Uh, Jamie Foxx, I don't know why he's typecast as this, but, like, it's the same character he played in Baby Driver and, like, uh, in Horrible Bosses, what was his name, Mother Jones. Like, he's just, like, this badass criminal that you can never trust, and I, I don't know why he's typecast as that, because he's a great actor, and he never gets to show his charisma anymore. Dominique Fishback is interesting, probably because she just, like, breaks out into rap a lot, but she, she gives a pretty cool performance. But the star of the movie, to me, was uh, Rodrigo Santoro, He's like this mysterious actor. He's almost like a Ray Fiennes type. And uh, from the moment he appears on screen, he just jumps off the screen. He's awesome. And it's also randomly the second straight year we get a Netflix Machine Gun Kelly performance, which I, I don't even know what to think about that. Maybe he's got some contract there. <laughs> uh, the visuals in the movie are pretty cool. Uh, it's got this like dizzying video game type look. Uh, and the score is like a hybrid of like a gone in 60 seconds kind of electronic kind of thing uh, mixed with like a wannabe Hans Zimmer score 
The, the action scenes, I feel like, are kind of boring until someone takes the pill and does something cool. Like, I wanted it to be more, like, crank and less, like, limitless. Like, I wanted it to really go off the rails, but it, it, it didn't ever really do that for me. It was a little bit too controlled. And the, the final scene is, like, a... It's like a fantasy, Final Fantasy, like, cheat code kind of thing. I, it, was, it, it was, I don't know, I was a little let down by how it ended. I don't know why Netflix is, makes everything to be out the, uh, to be a, a, a series now. It might as well have just made it, a, like, a TV series instead of, like, a franchise. You would have gotten more viewers out anyway. I give it two stars. I'm, I'm okay with it. But in the end, uh, a bit let down, as I have been with a lot of Netflix movies recently. All right. Uh, I'm going to go next. I love this movie. Three and a half stars. Um, this was... And maybe this is skewed a little bit by the fact that... I mean, this felt like... This is like the closest thing to a fun, like... Comic book feel style movie that we've had. With with all the shutdown and not being able to go to the theaters. Um, it was, I had so much fun watching this movie. Um, the And it, it it's... It's kind of like superhero like and they take the pill and they get the superpowers for 5 minutes and stuff. But it's and it but it, with that it's such a unique and fresh feel. I feel on this and um and yeah, I just I, I just fell in love with it as I was watching it. It I completely pulled in and I I'm watching I'm like okay, how are they going to screw up the ending because usually when you get like this cool new premise, it's like okay, it's cool until you get to the ending. I think the ending kind of pays off. Um, yeah, it's it. You can kind of think of it as a cop out, but it works. It totally works. Um, I love that this year has become the comeback year for Joseph Gordon-Levitt with this and Seventy Five Hundred. The fact that he's actually making movies again, hallelujah. Um, and uh, I love Jamie Fox, Dominique Fishback, like you said. I I, I thought she was awesome. Uh, she she popped off the screen and um, and I can't wait to see what she does next. But yeah, three and a half stars. And again, maybe it's because I've been missing my popcorn movies at the theaters, and this is the best one. Like we watched Extraction a few months ago. That was something different. This is the first movie that we we've watched. It's like okay, this is a fun movie that would have been so cool to see in the theaters. That probably could have done pretty well in the theaters too. And um, and yeah, I, I loved it. I ate the whole thing up. Three and a half stars. Yeah, it doesn't feel Zach, like a Netflix movie, that's for sure. It doesn't. It doesn't at all. Yeah. Zach, how about you? Uh, we messed up the order on this, man. We needed to start, I think, with you, Terry, and then go to me, and then finish up with Todd, because I hated this movie. Uh, <laughs> this is the first time we've messed it up. Usually we get this, and uh, yeah. we, we, I swear we don't... Well, obviously this time we didn't do any sort of pre, pre, uh, pre-podcast pre meeting, but we should have this time because I really hated this movie um, for a lot of reasons. Uh, the premise is lame and derivative. Um, Crank and Limitless came to mind in the first 10 minutes of this movie. Um, I think the characters were very predictable in the arcs that they went on. Um, and, uh, I really also sort of hated how this movie tried to use race as a way to explain how the characters in this movie are oppressed. Um, basically, I, the movie tries to make the argument that this pill is being, um, tested out using black bodies as guinea pigs. Most of the people who take the pills in this movie are not black people, they're white people, especially the ones that overdose. 
And um, the movie just kind of throws in these references to Henrietta Locks as as though it's trying to make some kind of statement about uh, racial and systematic injustice in the United States. Um, when I think all it really does is just kind of say, hey, we're, we're filming in a black city. Hey, in case you didn't remember in the last five minutes, this, this movie's set in New Orleans because Joseph Gordon-Lovett is wearing a Steve Gleason jersey and we can sometimes hear them shout, who dat, who dat? Um, that aside, the one good part of this movie that I will give it credit for is I really, really think that, uh... Dominique Fishback is a star. She is really good in this movie. Um, by the way, do you, according to Wikipedia, do you know how old she is? Just guess. No. She is either 29 or 30, <laughs> which is kind of shocking because she plays a teenager. What? Yeah. Uh, I was shocked when I read that too. Um, she's the best part of this movie. And, you know, again, me, I, I can't, I, I, I'm, I try to resist projecting my own taste and intentions into a movie that was made by other people but man i really wanted this movie to be about dominique fishback and the relationship she has with her mother in this movie and how she is reliant on being a drug dealer in order to support uh her mother and herself and her mother has a medical condition in the movie and that and even her relationship with joseph gordon lovett is intriguing um and yet the movie sidesteps all of the kind of human interest in that story to make this spectacle with CGI and quasi-Marvel sort of stuff that I've just seen in 10 million other movies, and I'm so tired of it. This is a really fascinating character, and her rapping uh, is really... Uh, that's the best scene in the movie, is when she has kind of her imaginary rap, first with her teacher, and then the, in, in it, the exchange she has with Jamie Foxx later in the movie. She's the star of this movie. She's the best part of this movie. Otherwise, this movie is totally crap and i give it one and a half stars yeah yeah we we are very very different on this <laughs> i i agree like her her little uh her little raps are some of the best parts of the movie but i'd argue that they just picked the different human interest story to go with they picked the story of the father fighting for his daughter i don't i've seen i've seen it in ten, 10 other movies that were better done i mean going back to george c scott and hardcore man you know Watch that if you want a a, a real uh, blistering look at the uh, the criminal underworld. This movie doesn't offer anything um, uh, interesting to say about uh, the drug distribution channel. Um, it gets uh, sidetracked by CGI. I, frankly, I kind of thought it was lame CGI. Um, I was kind of intrigued by the idea that everyone would have a different superpower, yet the movie never really de dealt with that. It never really explained why certain people have superpowers that other people don't. That was an intriguing avenue the movie could have explored. Doesn't do that. Throw in some stuff about racial injustice and try to make it a quote-unquote woke movie. That eh, didn't work for me. Came off as very kind of artificial, gimmicky. And uh, I, I, I had a hard time paying attention over the last 30 minutes. Well, and I mean, like I said, it's it's like a borderline superhero type of movie, which isn't you're not the audience for that either. No, I'm so. not. I, that's why I said I say this with a big caveat. <laughs> I'm not the perfect demographic for this, but I do. I, I'm disappointed because. You know, I thought that the, the, the Dominique Fishback character is really interesting, and I would have liked to have just seen a movie about her and her mother and maybe her her relationship with the Joseph Gordon-Levitt character. I don't care about the drugs, but I guess I'm in the minority in that. I think probably most people watching this movie do care about the special effects, but I thought they were lame. 
I love the scene where Joseph Gordon-Levitt sneaks into the bathroom and takes off all his clothes and pretends he just got out of the shower to get the mom out of a out of a sticky situation. That feels like it came out of a writer's room re- uh, rewrite session. It that, that that didn't feel organic to the movie at all. Yeah. All right. Well, we're gonna we're just gonna disagree heavily on this. Well, if you like, I I mean, Zach, would you say that this is if if you're a fan of kind of superhero type movies, then this is something that's gonna appeal to you a lot more than. I mean, is it others. is it is it better than Crank and Limitless? Maybe I don't know. I hated those movies too. But, Crank um, is awesome. Limitless, not so much. And I, I don't think I ever saw Limitless, but Limitless was not. I, from what I understand, it's not quite the same concept. Crank is, I feel, completely different because that's just like pure adrenaline. We'll just have to agree to disagree. Anyway. Yeah, yeah, we will. We will. I don't. So I don't. It three and I don't a half. think I care enough to really expound that much energy criticizing this movie. <laughs> if this if this movie sounds interesting to you, I think you're going to like it. Uh, let's put it that way. I, I have a feeling, Zach, this movie didn't sound interesting to you from the very get go. I liked seeing Machine Gun Kelly die. That was that was fun. I've wanted to see that for a while. <laughs> All right, well, I'm the one giving it a thumbs up. I give it three and a half. Todd's giving it two. Zach's giving it one and a half. It's on Netflix. It's easy to find. It's the number one movie on Netflix right now. Uh, yeah, if it, again, if it sounds interesting at all to you, it, it's worth a it's worth a watch. So if it doesn't sound interesting, you're probably not going to like it. All right, well, let's move on. Uh, it's time to get into spotlight segment. And for our spotlight segment, we are building another Mount Rushmore. This is another all-decade Mount Rushmore. I think the, this episode, this feels like the like surprise episode. Because I think our Mount Rushmore and our power rankings are all kind of looking at things that are kind of surprises for different reasons one way or the other. And, uh, and our Mount Rushmore is the uh, Mount Rushmore of unheralded movies of the 2010s. Zach, you had the idea for this topic, so I'm going to let you kind of explain it a little bit here. Yeah, so, you know, I was thinking about movies like It's a Wonderful Life and uh, The Shawshank Redemption. Movies that came out, you know, and got good reviews. In some cases, they got some Oscar nominations. But they weren't overwhelming, and people didn't flock to see them. In fact, It's a Wonderful Life was sort of a bomb at the box office. And um, but now today, you know, they are regularly uh, ranked as two of the greatest American movies ever made. So with that in mind, I was kind of wondering, you know, are there movies from the 2010s that were sort of unheralded, went maybe under the radar a little bit? Not necessarily that they were shit on by critics, but, you know, people liked them maybe, but didn't get a lot of attention. But maybe come 30, 40, 50 years from now, we'll be remembered in the same way we remember The Shawshank Redemption or It's a Wonderful Life. Yeah, yeah. I, I I think this is a really interesting topic, and uh, and it it was kind of hard to find some good some good examples too, and like like some good ones from the twenty tens. I felt at least. Um. So uh, so we're going we're doing Mount Rushmore. We're each gonna submit one. We're then we're gonna come together and try and uh, agree on one all together. Uh, Zach, it's your topic. I'm gonna let you go first. Okay. So uh, this was. You know, I really wanted to think of a movie that 
I had a few in mind, and I'm not going to mention my honorable mentions because we're going to come up with a fourth one together, but I, I knew I wanted to go with a movie that didn't really get any Oscar attention, wasn't really put on any critics' top ten lists. Uh, the movie that I chose has a 69% on Rotten Tomatoes, and it was certainly a movie that divided people, and it actually divided us on our podcast. It was one of the first episodes, I believe, that we ever recorded. And that movie comes from 2017, I believe, and that is Darren Aronofsky's Mother. And on this podcast, we were kind of split about it. Um, I think Todd and I were bigger fans than Terry was. And uh, it is the kind of movie that absolutely divides audiences. I think when it came out, people were like, is this movie a metaphor? Is Darren Aronofsky trying to say something about the environment or religion or politics? And what is with the dead babies? Um, and I think a lot of people were surprised that Jennifer Lawrence would even be in a project that sort of audacious and ambitious and um, sort of abstract. And I think it is a movie that I want to say in 30 or 40 years, people are going to remember really fondly. Um, they may even remember it as Darren Aronofsky's best film because it it goes to places that are really surprising. And, I, you know, I was overwhelmed just as a sort of cinematic experience. The whole movie takes place in one house. It never leaves this one site. And how Aronofsky is able to have these scenes of total chaos and, like, raves and, like, people... You know, by the end of the movie, military battalion have invaded this house. And just kind of from a conceptual level, it's it's kind of an amazing movie. So I want to say to future generations in 2050, 2060, we, we didn't appreciate Mother. I, I think you will. And uh, I think it's a really good movie that will will have an afterlife. I think that that's a great one that kind of fits into that probably was ahead of its time mold of... You know, it need it needs to just sit for a little while, and eventually people are going to rediscover it and be like, "Oh, okay, now I get what this movie was all about." Well, it makes that a risky so, pick, though. Is that I mean, that is a challenging movie, and but like Shawshank Redemption and It's Wonderful Life, that's the opposite of challenging. Very true. Like, those are crowd pleasing things. So, I I can't think of a really good example of one that would fit into that that mold that it, that we've looked at differently than we did 50 years ago maybe like a clockwork orange or something but even that was not my best picture well i mean we're talking we're using shawshank as an example shawshank was nominated for best picture yeah so is it's a wonderful life i mean i'm not saying they, they don't have to be they don't have to you know receive they could have received oscar nominations but you know the low-hanging fruit here is like boyhood or moonlight or mad max for your road i mean all, critics all over put those movies on their top 10 no one had mother on their top 10 list of the decade it's a good call it's a good call i i, I was yeah i was the one that really did not get it when I watched it, so, uh, but I agree that that one probably deserves to be on, on this list, or I'm not going to argue with it being on the list. Todd, how about you? Uh, so I went with the movie, I had it on my top 25 of the decade, but when it came out, like, it had almost no, uh, theatrical run, but yet it won the National Society of Film Critics Best Picture winner Award, and that was A Most Violent Year, directed by J.C. Chandor. And this is a movie that is really heavy on the feel of it and on the look of it and on the scope of it because it's, it's like this uh, almost like mob type uh, immigrant story about a guy trying to gain power. And Oscar Isaac like, it gives the best like Al Pacino type performance that 
that anyone's ever given. It's his best work, and it always will be his best work. J.C. Chander's actually making a sequel of the movie, which makes it, me also think that people will revisit this eventually and uh, give it the recognition it deserves, because it is an amazing movie, and I don't know more than even a handful of people that have even seen it, but uh, it's uh, I, I think that in future generations, this could be looked back on as one of the truly best, most polished works of the 2010s. Yeah, I feel like that's one that J.C. Chandor is going to have to do something like the, a sequel, or he's going to have to have an awards run in the next decade or so that's going to force people to go back and re, re-examine what he's done in his career and discover movies like Margin Call that they may not have seen before or A Most Violent Year. Exactly. Yeah, Most Violent Year has good reviews on Rotten Tomato. It's an 89%, but it was made on a $20 million budget and only grossed a little over $5 million. So it absolutely did not do uh, big business theatrically. And Jessica Chastain almost got an Oscar nomination for this. That's like true. She, she, she got robbed, a lot of people say, for, for, for this that year. Well, I mean, it was cited a lot of times by critic organizations, but it, it, like all the major awards, the Golden Globes and everything, they, just, they all ignored it because it was, I don't think it was a big enough movie. None of people saw it, and it, was, it really did run completely under the radar that whole year. Yeah. Um, uh, one thing I loved about this topic is it felt like it was going to be the first time we were going to do a Mount Rushmore where it was almost guaranteed that no one, there wasn't going to be any overlap in the movies that we wanted to say. Like, how many times have we done Mount Rushmore where someone says something and the other one goes, Damn it! You took mine! <laughs> there was no chance that was going to happen here. I think here, there was and a possibility didn't. with a couple movies, but not, not yeah. when we go with Mother and then... That just, you know. Yeah. All right. So, so my my submission I'm gonna go with here um, is probably it, it's probably the most mainstream of the ones that we that will have been mentioned. It's much more mainstream than the two that you've said. Um, and it did it did okay at the box office. It it made twenty million its first weekend. It ended up only grossing sixty six though. Um, so it didn't. It didn't. Wasn't a huge success. But I think looking back on it, um, it might end up having a bigger success. It's another Joseph Gordon-Levitt movie. I'm going with Looper. Ooh. Um, this this movie written and directed by Ryan Johnson, and I think he's kind of similar to what Todd's saying with J.C. Chandor. I think he's the reason this is going to be looked back on, uh, because Ryan Johnson is. Gonna, is working his way up to being one of the top filmmakers working right now. And after something like Last Jedi and Knives Out, um, I think he's still in, in plans to make like a, his own Star Wars trilogy. Um, he's going to become a household name when it comes to filmmaking and great films. And this is a great film. And I could see like Looper being to Ryan Johnson like Memento is to Christopher Nolan, right? Memento was was a pretty small-time movie that got a little bit of awards love, but then once everyone knew who Christopher Nolan was after he made the Dark Knight trilogy and Inception and all this stuff, now everyone's like, well, everyone's, you know, Memento was the start of it all. And I think people might look back on, on Ryan Johnson's career and say Looper was his first, you know, success, his first big one, and it's an amazing movie. It really is a great movie. Um, and, uh, it's really imaginative, really original. I mean, you could say a lot of the originality that 
Zach, you were looking for in Project Power, Looper has. So um, I, I'm that's what I'm going with. I'm going with Looper. Yeah, that was that was one of the ones I was considering too. It's a yeah, that that's an amazing movie and uh, the second best time travel movie of all time. And yeah, I don't know why it wasn't a big a big hit when it came out because it fits it, it checks every box, but uh, for some reason it di- it didn't blow up at the box office. Maybe it's just because it was rated R. I don't know. Came- Maybe it was Joseph Gordon-Levitt's chin. <laughs> and his CGI eye color to match Bruce Willis. Um, yeah. I, I want to say, it, it, I think it came out in August, and I remember when it came September. out. Or September. Okay, well, it came out a little before Oscar season, and I do not think people thought it was going to be a good movie. I, I, I remember seeing a trailer for it and thinking, wow, this looks kind of bad. And uh, I think it was sort of one of those movies that was shocking that it was actually good. So I... Love the pick, Terry. That's a that's a great call. That's the exact same also, way I thought about the lookout when when that came out, and the similar Joe Gordon Levitt movie, similar kind of feel to it, and they both were really good. <laughs> well, and I remember the trailer kind of threw you off because, like, wait, Joseph Gordon Levitt's playing Bruce Willis, and they they like, what did they do to Joseph Gordon Levitt? Yeah, it just it but, looked yeah, it, it, it looked so gimmicky. Like it didn't look like it was really. It, it looked like it was just a, sort of a gag, uh, but the, obviously the movie was really intelligently written with good performances, and even though I do think that the one knock on it is that it sort of has the same plot as Terminator 2. That's always been my problem with Looper, but that doesn't mean it's not an entertaining movie. And I mean, and I think it just goes to show how great Ryan Johnson is, and I think he, I think over the next decade, we're only going to see more and more of how great he is. And uh, and people are going to start to revisit his career and recognize the masterpiece that Looper is. So unless he makes three more right. Star Wars movies, and yes, everybody yeah. else. yes. Well, yeah, if he, he he might do a Star Wars trilogy. I think he's working on Knives Out two, and uh, I heard someone suggest that in in Knives Out two, um, Benoit Blanc should have a different accent. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> and every movie he just—it's still Daniel Craig, but it's just a different accent every movie. Anyways, all right, so there we've got three. We've got Mother. We've got a Most Violent Year. We've got Looper. We need a fourth. What what are we gonna go with? What what are you guys thinking? So there was a movie that inspired me wanting to make this Mount Rushmore, and that movie is Inside Lewin Davis. Now, Inside Lewin Davis mm. got Oscar attention. It had great reviews, and a lot of critics did already put it on their top ten list of the decade. However, I don't feel like it gets enough love, and um, I feel like in 30, 40 years, people might actually say it's the Coen Brothers' best movie. I'm okay, though, with saying that it's a little too big and too mainstream to really be good for this list. But it's a movie that inspired me thinking about this, this idea. That, that's an interesting one. Yeah, that it definitely was unheralded when it came out. Um, I, I I was thinking that the inspiration for this list has been the inspiration for almost everything that we've done recently, and that's uncut gems. Yeah, well, I mean, well, that yeah, I mean, that, um, that'd be an easy pick too. Yeah, but I I know we're gonna talk about in our power rankings in a little bit that uh, we we've we've kind of disqualified uncut gems <laughs> from being picked anymore it's because the new Fargo. it's picked for everything. Yeah, it's the new Fargo. Um, so, um, yeah, we did a, speaking of the new Fargo, you're saying Inside Lewin Davis is going to be the Coen Brothers' best film. I mean, <laughs> replacing Fargo? Come on, man. 
Um, but yeah, yeah. It, we, we, it ends up at the top of every one of our lists. So I was kind of thinking either we were going to all just say it's Uncut Gems or we were going to say we can't pick Uncut Gems. I mean, either but way. But Inside Lone Davis me. is a good one, too. <laughs> uh, another one I thought of that I want to throw out there um, is uh, Fruitvale Station. Yeah, I have that on my list. Um, yeah, it got a lot of critical praise. Um, it was... It, not many people saw it. It didn't really go anywhere when it came to award season. But it announced the arrival of Michael B. Jordan, who's becoming a big-time movie star. It announced the arrival of Ryan Coogler, who did the Black Panther movie. He's done the Creed movies. He's doing some amazing things. And when you look at what's going around in our society now, it speaks so much to what's happening um, in, uh, in a lot of the racial movements that are going on, racial equality. Um, so I could see this being one of those movies that you look at and say, this was a really forward thinking movie and kind of ahead of its time by a filmmaker that was just getting its start. That's about to explode. Yeah. 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 You said it. I mean, he, he was a, he was a young man when he made that movie and it was about his hometown and something obviously really personal to him. And yeah, it, that, that was, I mean, it was a special movie and it's unfortunate that it was so small that nobody really saw it. Cause Michael B. Jordan does give one of the best performances of the decade in that movie. Uh, so I, I, I was thinking the, the easy one for me was silence because I, I think mm. that that is a uh, one that was super overlooked when it came out. I mean, I, I didn't make any money and it was a huge budget and a long t- process to make the movie but i think that that could be our you know once upon a time in america kind of movie that people look back on as being one of the great movies but it wasn't uh looked at like that at the time the i i thought about silence and the one reason i didn't i didn't go with it and i didn't uh consider it was you look at and this this was the the martin scorsese religious passion project of this decade and you look back at his other religious passion projects, The Last Temptation of Christ or Kundun, something like that, they don't get the steam moving forward. Like, they, they don't, they're not looked back on and remember, it's like, okay, that was a forgotten masterpiece of that time, and we're going to herald it now. So that's what makes me think maybe Silence doesn't get that either because his other ones haven't. Well, silent. The scope of silence is way bigger than that. I mean, it's it feels like a movie that if it came out in like the fifties or something, it'd be on the AFI top one hundred. But I don't know. That's a good point. So uh, a couple other ones I was thinking about. I was thinking about the Florida Project because, I mean, it's clearly one of the best American movies of the last ten years, and one Oscar nomination is just atrocious. It was just too small. I think we could look back on that differently in fifty years. I was also thinking about Rush because Rush is a like a crazy like biopic popcorn movie and that movie is awesome and i don't know anybody that doesn't like it i think it's in the the imdb top 250 and i could see that only gaining steam as things go as uh, as years go along and then a couple other ones i wanted to mention that uh i don't know anyone else that really saw or really cared for or when it came out but i think they're great movies and that's uh, motherless brooklyn came out last year directed by edward norton and the next three days, which was Paul Haggis's movie from earlier this decade, yeah. with Russell Crowe. I, I just rewatched that recently too. That is a really great, I think, misunderstood movie. And uh, I, I don't. I mean, it's not going to be to the level that, of the movies that we're talking about. But those are movies that I, I felt like people just completely missed when they came out, and they could be better, more revered as time goes on. 
I don't think the next three days necessarily is going to get to this level, but you're right. It's kind of a forgotten movie that was that was better than it than the uh, than the acclaim it got in the moment. Uh, one thing I'll say about uh, what was what was like the first one you just mentioned? Rush, Florida Project. Yeah, Rush, yeah. Rush. Um, Rush came out 2010, right? No, it was I think it was like later. 20, or 2011, 2014, I thought. Yeah. Oh, 20, oh, okay. Anyways. Ru yeah. Anyways, Rush was one I was thinking about. It's, it's kind of funny that Rush got, like, no Oscar love and Ford v. Ferrari did. <laughs> Go like, figure. Right. Yeah, that, that didn't make any sense. But at the same time, you, you say, yeah, nobody really hated that movie. And I agree, nobody did. However, you look back on it now, it's like, everyone still forgets that about that movie. Even though you, it's Chris Hemsworth. I mean, it's Chris Hemsworth after he'd already played Thor, and everyone forgets about Rush. I don't know. Maybe that. Maybe that. That's saying something that it doesn't have that staying power. Yeah. Well, maybe it's like, maybe it's like uh, Alfred Hitchcock's Spellbound or whatever. Maybe it's that that for Ron Howard. Like it's it's that movie in his career that might be one of his best movies that nobody ever talks about as being his best movie. Or Marnie. Well. I don't know. I don't even know that Marnie's that good, though. <laughs> You're right. Marnie is not that that good, but I don't know. Can I throw out a couple more titles before we, we Absolutely. vote on one? Uh, I also thought of Edge of Tomorrow slash Live, Die, Repeat, because that movie got screwed over by a, a bad title campaign. Um, but every everyone I've ever known who's seen it really likes it. Again, I don't know if it's AFI Top 100 material, but it's worth putting out there. Um, First Man, which was in my top ten list of the decade, um, mm. criminally underappreciated. And then if, if we're sticking on the JGL theme, why not Premium Rush, the biker movie he made, where he's the, the biker in New York City? Like, that's kind of an awesome movie. David Bordwell had a long post about how that movie is, like, cinematically genius. And um, I think it's it deserves more attention. Well, like I said, it's basically Project Power again. <laughs> I, I've, I haven't seen Premium Rush. I, I think Premium Rush uh, should have been a sequel to Rush. I think it came out before Rush. <laughs> yeah, I think it did too. <laughs> uh, okay, so so what are what are we going with here? Oh, I what, think what what were the ones? I think there's, I think there's a clear answer, and it was said by Todd. I think we have to go with Silence. I mean, it 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 is uh, you know people are going to be discussing Martin Scorsese's career for a long time. Did he have a great movie of the 2010s? If he did, it was Silence, right? It had to be. Yeah, I have that as my submission for the Scorsese Mount Rushmore, so. <laughs> I agree. Yeah. I mean, well, I, I'd it, be okay with Fruitvale Station. I mean, are, are we. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, that would be my second place. Fruitvale yeah. Station is a good one. I, I mean, are, are we talking. If we're talking like the masterpiece, Scorsese masterpiece of the 2010s, is, is it going to be remembered as Silence or The Irishman? That's and if true. it's The Irishman, should The Irishman be on this list? Well, with its 11 Oscar nominations, I, I don't know about that. It didn't win any. And it was a three-and-a-half-hour Netflix movie. That for some reason everyone freaked out because it was a three-and-a-half-hour Netflix movie. Even though they'll watch, you know, an entire season of something else, all ten hour-long episodes in one sitting, they can't watch a three-and-a-half-hour Scorsese movie. 
Yeah, but you know, Netflix Netflix gives into creativity and they're okay with three and a half hour movies. The fact that Scorsese was able to, you know, spend 30, 40 years putting together silence and then actually release it as a three hour movie that was, you know, by all accounts, his vision of what the story, what he wanted the story to be is in some ways, I think, more impressive and audacious than The Irishman. Yeah. Yeah. Silence or Fruitvale Station? Or Uncut Gems. <laughs> I mean, well, really, well, the answer the, is Uncut Gems. Of course. But I'll go with Silence. You know what? I, I think you, you convinced me because we have we have on here the visionary film that might might have been ahead of its time. We have on here a, uh, a masterpiece that um, nobody saw. We have on here the... Um, you know, the early work of a potentially up-and-coming landmark filmmaker, and now we're going to go with a, um, a legendary filmmaker possibly making his last masterpiece. You know, Scorsese could live until, like, 110, man. Let's not assume he's going to die soon. He's not Joe Biden. He could live for a long time, you know? He could make some <laughs> more movies. Isn't he doing another movie with Leo? Didn't they announce that in the last couple weeks? Yeah. I think it's Leo and De Niro, isn't it? And Pesci. And Keitel. And, yeah. Oh my god, Todd's gonna orgasm. Something about a flower. I forget what it's called. What's it called, Todd? Uh, It's like Killers of the Flower Moon or something. (laughs) Yeah, something like that. That sounds like an Ed Wood movie. Let's go with Silence. We're going with Silence. Alright, so our Mount Rushmore of unheralded movies of the 2010s, Mother, A Most Violent Year, Looper, and Silence. I think that may have been the most fascinating... Um, discussion over what should be the fourth one we've ever had on one of these Mount Rushmores. And none of those were bad picks. I, those were all good. Oh, yeah, yeah. And, uh, and well, and even if you don't necessarily like the movie, you can understand why it belongs in this conversation, too. And, uh, and I really like the Mount Rushmores where we don't, like, have the consensus beforehand of what the, what the, the agreed-upon movie is going to be because I think the discussion about it is really good. Okay, Mother, Most Violent Year, Looper, and Silence. I like it. All right, it is now time for Power Rankings. You can't top that. Yeah, that's the movie about the horse. I'm going to pull an audible at the last minute here. That's because I haven't seen it. Power Rankings. Not including Fargo. Can't choose Fargo ever again. And like I said... Uh, I think this is like the the uh, the surprise podcast episode because we talked about unheralded movies of the of the 2010s, and our power rankings is kind of in a similar. I, I think you, that you could say that they're related. Uh, this was my choice. It's an all decade list, and we're looking at the 2010s and we're going with most unexpected performances of the 2010s. Now this is. Um, Zach asked me recently to try and clarify what, what I'm, what I'm looking for here. I mean, it could be something that just kind of came out of nowhere, but the real heart of this list is a known actor that's known for doing something that all of a sudden gives a very unexpected performance. Now this could be a good unexpected or a bad unexpected, but someone that just kind of blows you away in one way or another in being unexpected or surprising is that does that sound about right yes it's not exactly i i took it in like a bunch of different ways but that that wasn't really how i was thinking about it necessarily well that's how i was thinking about it so that's what i'm going with (laughs) well i just i was just using the word unexpected 
Yeah, that's fine. That's fine. Use the word un- unexpected. That I, I'll, it'll be it'll be an interesting list for sure. All right, so I'm gonna start this one off. Five. And yeah, I thought this was kind of an interesting list to make. I'm going with for my number five. I'm going with a guy who is uh, known for comedy uh, and came out of nowhere and unexpectedly starred in a drama that ended up being a best picture nominee and um he was kind of a forgotten part of this movie however he was really good in it and that's will forte in nebraska that was such an unexpected performance i think will forte um if you look at like 2000s snl i think he might be the most underrated no i'm gonna go with this he is the most un one of the most underrated snl performers of all time because he happened to hit SNL at the same time as Will Ferrell and Jimmy Fallon and all those guys in the early to mid to late 2000s. And everyone forgot about Will Forte. And every time he was on screen, he was hilarious. Then he goes and he does this. And he does this black and white kind of quirky comedy drama where he's the straight man following around his elderly father in Bruce Dern. And... Like, this is like the definition of an unexpected performance. And once I thought of it, it had to go on my list. So, yeah, number five, Will Forte in Nebraska. That's a good one. I think there's some, there's quite a few SNL alum that could appear on this list. It's possible. It's possible. All right, Zach, you're next. Number five. Okay, so keeping with another one of our unintentional themes of this episode, um, I'm going with JGL. Because we've mentioned him now like 40 times in this episode. <laughs> I'm going with a movie that I, I feel like deserves some extra points because not only did he star in it, but he also wrote and directed it. And that is Don John from 2013. And uh, this was a really surprising movie. I, I was not expecting, uh, you know, jo- JGL to play like a, a, a greasy uh new jersey you know like wannabe jersey uh, shore star uh who's addicted to uh, to internet porn and um he lives with his parents played by tony danza and glennie hadley uh aka uh, mrs uh Dreyf- uh mrs um uh holland and um yeah he's really good in this movie i mean okay does he does he look like the rock is he absolutely ripped you know can he can he bench press five, 600 pounds probably not but he pulls off the New Jersey accent pretty well in the movie. Um, he he's looking all right in the wife beater. You can believe that uh, he only cares about his his haircut and his car, and uh, his addiction to online porn and vacuuming and 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 laundry. Um, and he's pretty good in the movie. And he also wrote and directed, so there's that too. So again, um, I guess this is coming from an actor who uh, a lot of times we don't expect what he's going to do next because he's really versatile. But uh, he's good in this movie, and he wouldn't have been my first choice. You missed the whole list. It's my body, my pad, my ride, my, my, my girls, my boys, and porn, or whatever. Like in the in the in the trailer, that's a good choice. I was thinking about Tony Danza from that movie, honestly. Like, yeah, but see, like Tony Danza could to play be that like movie a directorial sleep. debut. Yeah, but to be like a directorial debut, it didn't it didn't quite. It was very unexpected that that would be what Joseph Gordon-Levitt goes with. So exactly. that's a good pick. Scarlett Johansson also right, kind, of, kind of unexpected in that movie, too. Sorry, go ahead. That's a yeah. good point, yeah. 
All right. Uh, from my number five, I went with a movie from 2010, and it is the movie Cyrus, and it is the performance from Jonah Hill. Because nice. that was the first time I saw Jonah Hill as something other than Seth from Superbad. Like, he's subtle, and he's mysterious, but he's put opposite of John C. Riley in, like, what should have been, like, stepbrothers, but it's nowhere near as angry. It's way more interesting than that. And he he has a performance as all facial expressions, and the only other time I think he's done that was Moneyball, and he got nominated for an Oscar for that. This movie is way smaller. It's basically a mumblecore movie, a Duplass Brothers mumblecore movie that he made almost mainstream because he was so interesting and he had such um like a, a stature at the time that he he could do that and uh it's one of his two or three best performances but i never thought when i watched super bad that he would give be able to be an, a real actor like that you know, he is incredible in cyrus i think he should have been nominated for this too so I, I that was one of the first ones i thought of jonah hill in cyrus i think that's still the only duplass brothers movie i've seen jeff who lives at home is a total terry movie don't you think is that, is that that's a Jason Segel one, right? Yeah. Or yeah. I don't know. I think I, mean, I, I think safety. I love Jason Segel. I think so. safety not guaranteed is a, is more of a Terry movie, but I don't know if that officially that's counts as a Duplass, Duplass Brothers, Brothers movie. Movies. Okay, well, well he's in a guy it, who did just, Jurassic World. Yeah, that that's Trevorrow, right? Colin Trevorrow. Yeah. Yeah, he's in it. Yeah, he is. Okay. Moving on, number four. Number four. Uh, this is the uh, the spot where I put the most unexpected performance that ended up working its way to winning an Oscar. And um, there were a couple candidates for for this this spot on my list. Uh, the one I went with was Natalie Portman in Black Swan. Um, I mean, you look at her career leading up leading up to twenty ten. Um, she is most known for, at this point, probably Princess Amidala in the Star Wars movies. She had had her one Oscar nomination before that for Closer, for playing a stripper. Um, but, I mean, it was it was like the, the standard stripper with a heart of gold type of thing. I guess you could say the closest thing to this is maybe V for Vendetta. But even then, she's still kind of the sidekick to the superhero. This is like dark and she completely transforms her body into being a ballerina and I completely goes off a deep end that we didn't even know existed for Natalie Portman and honestly I don't know she's never really ever returned there either and but she just showed how great of an actress she is and it was completely unexpected completely off the you know off the path of what you of what she was you thought she was capable of, which is why she ended up winning the Oscar for it. So yeah, number four, Natalie Portman, Black Swan. Well, she started her career with The Professional. I mean, that that's another one that is a pretty difficult role for for an actress that would end up doing what the career that she had. But yeah, I, I do I do like that pick. Very a lot. true. I was, I was considering I was considering that one too. All right, Zach, number four. Okay, I'm going with um, so a a, a lot. A lot of the people that came to my mind were not the most like obvious ones um, in terms of their uh, popularity or their Oscar recognition. So this is probably the smallest role I have on this list. But again, this is someone who, if you told me played this role going into the movie, I would have never believed it. And that is Eve Plum, a.k.a. Jan Brady, as one of the hillbilly sisters, Chris Cleland, in Blue Ruin. 
Now, maybe Todd knows what I'm talking about. She's not in the movie that much. She's really only in the movie, I think, at the climactic end sequence when Macon Blair has, uh, uh, you know, shaken down everyone. He's, he's turned himself into a badass, and he's stolen the limo, and he has the shot-off shot, shotgun, and Buzz, uh, you know, helps him. Um, but you know what? If you had told me that Jan Brady would play a toothless, backwoods, hillbilly, hick woman... Um, who should have been on the show Ozark, I would not have believed it. And she is, like, fucking terrifying in this movie. I mean, she, she's got, like, the, the greasy hair and the, the, the backwards uh, way of talking. And Jan Brady, you know, you just kind of think, oh, you know, the envious uh, younger sister of Marsha Brady. What's Eve Plum? Is Eve Plum still alive? Um, but I think it's one of the kind of great un- unheralded uh, supporting character performances of the decade that you would have never expected to see in any movie. She's unrecognizable. You don't know it's Jam Brady until the credits. And Blue Ruin is also a movie that I would have nominated for our Mount Rushmore of unheralded movies of the 2010s. So there you go. Eve Plum. Wow. That, I, I don't really remember a... the character, but I, I like the pig. That's a yeah. That's a great pick. I've never seen the movie, but that's a great pick. Jam Brady as a crazy redneck hick with a shotgun. I mean, <laughs> don't you want to see that? Oh man! All right, Todd, number four. Uh, so my number four is also a really short performance. Uh, it is uh, Robert De Niro in American Hustle, because I think the the reason why it's mainly unexpected is because when he shows up, you had completely forgotten that he was in the movie or that you, you didn't even know that he was going to be because it was really sort of under wraps, like, that he was part of the cast. And I guess it would be similar to, like, Tom Cruise in Tropic Thunder because he's in heavy makeup and he's, like, speaking Arabic. Uh, and it, his character is, like, built up throughout the movie. And the fact that De Niro sat down and had this, like, five-minute scene just shows, like, how much he actually thought of David O. Russell. And uh, I think it's one of the highlights in a movie that is otherwise pretty forgettable and a movie that is sort of, like, rightfully just, like, left in the past. Like, I don't know why it got so many Oscar nominations. But De Niro is awesome in his, like, five-minute role. And, uh, yeah, seeing him pop up is the impact that the movie left on me. Nice. Uh, I think you could also say it's kind of like Al Pacino in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, where it's, like, this little tiny bit part, and then it's like, well, why... You had to, you had to get the Hollywood legend to play your bit part? <laughs> Really? <laughs> yeah, that's true. Uh, that's a good choice. Alright, number three for me... Number three! ...is uh, kind of unexpected in a bad way. I, I don't... I don't know. Uh, so, th- I think this performance gets crapped on a little more than it deserves. So, my pick for number three... I mean, if you want something unexpected... Take someone that you have no idea if they can actually sing or not and put them in a musical. That's right. It's Russell Crowe in Les Miserables. Uh-huh. Um, <laughs> like, this is like, this This could be number one of the most unexpected. Uh, I, I will say this. I will defend him a little bit. I don't think he's as bad as everyone says he is. I actually didn't mind him that bad. With that said, it is, he is so badly miscast. Um, what he does, I think, works for what it is, but for how powerful that character could be, he can't deliver it. And uh, it was unexpected because you're like, oh, Russell Crowe Russell Crow can sing? Okay, let's see how this goes. Wait, 
can Russell Crowe sing? I, I haven't found out yet, and he's okay, and he's dying. Okay, I still know, don't know if Russell Crowe can actually sing, because, yeah, so, very unexpected. <laughs> Russell Crowe, Les Miserables, number three. That's a good one. It's similar to Johnny <laughs> Depp in Sweeney Todd or something like that. It's just like, how's that going to work? But it, But in Sweeney Todd, it totally works. In yep. this, yeah, and I think it's just because of how, I think it got crapped on just because of how much everyone just loves and lauds that musical, and how powerful of a character that is, and Russell Crowe just completely ruined what it, what it is. So, but you right, brought Zach. you brought up some bad memories, Terry. I thought I had <laughs> overcome the trauma of watching that performance, but thanks for. Thanks for reminding me. <clears throat> no problem. I'm here to help. Okay, uh, my number three is also a fairly minor character, but it's a fairly big star um, who I did not know played this role until I watched the end credits and in disbelief saw her name. And that is a movie I, I was reluctant to, to talk about movies I've already talked about, but I had to put this on my list. Um, this is Elizabeth Banks as Effie Trinket in The Hunger Games. Um Again, no clue that she was that role until I saw the end credits. Uh, she wears a lot of makeup, uh, so I guess that's part of it. But I think she's also messing around with her voice. And uh, wow, it's an impressive performance. And I know Todd has a lot of thoughts on Elizabeth Banks. Um, I low-key sort of think it's her best performance ever. I mean, maybe I haven't seen all the movies that, that, that she's been in, like Todd has, but... Uh, I think she's really good in the movie, and uh, my god. I mean, if you're talking about, like, you know, just get a screen capture of her, and I don't think anyone would say that was Elizabeth Banks. So I, I wanted to also say that this was tied with um, Tilda Swinton in Snowpiercer because they're kind of the same character, and Tilda Swinton was also pretty unrecognizable in Snowpiercer. I actually think she was playing a man. Um, but uh, Tilda Swinton, we kind of expect that from, that sort of androgyny and versatility. Elizabeth Banks, not so much, and she's great in the Hunger Games. The first one. I do not care about the sequels. What about Tilda Swinton in Uncut Gems? Of course! What about Tilda Swinton in uh, A Trainwreck? I mean, you could put any Tilda Swinton movie on there. That's there you why you, it's, too, it's too easy to put her on uh, this list. Yeah, I, I think that she is like she can't be on this list because nothing she does is unexpected. No, nor nor can Meryl Streep. I mean, I had a Meryl Streep role that I have in my honorable mentions, but it's just not fair. Like, some actors, you you expect the unexpected. Alright, Todd, number three. Alright, well, my number three, the movie has already been mentioned, and that is uh, Black Swan, and I chose Mila Kunis because at Ooh. the time mm. uh, she had pretty much only done Forgetting Sarah Marshall and that 70s show and, like, child performances and, like, honey we shrunk ourselves and whatnot but like in here she's like crazy she's like the villain sort of she's like incredibly sexy and it's a physical role and aronofsky does that like he'll push his actors further and that's why terry chose natalie portman and that's a great choice too but like i didn't think that she was a serious actor and she was came within like a breath of an oscar nomination and she wasn't even and nobody considered her to be a, like a real actress at the time and i i think it's one of the most memorable and most difficult roles of the 2010s and it's like her effortless just like watchability is what makes it a really high war performance at the same time and i i never expected that i i thought her role was going to be way more way, way more flat than that but she is dynamic and she is awesome and i never i never thought she could do that 
That's a good call. That's a good call. There's so many things that were unexpected about that movie. I would have yeah, put that, Barbara Hershey as my number one. From that yeah, movie. Barbara Hershey, you could say Winona Ryder. <laughs> I guess the only one that's kind of playing to type in that movie is Vincent Castle. <laughs> yeah, it's true. All right, yeah, that's a good pick. Okay. Uh, my number two, number two, speaking of movies that have been mentioned before, this was actually on my, on my last power rankings list that we made two weeks ago. Um, and this is holding the spot on my list of the, you know, you thought they were one thing and then they just completely changed the game with one performance and go completely against type. This is an Oscar nominated performance Amazing Amy herself, Rosamund Pike in Gone Girl. Um, leading into this, I, if you were to ask me who Rosamund Pike is, I would probably say she's one of the Bennett sisters in the 2005 Pride and Prejudice with Keira Knightley. I, I might remember her first film role as one of the Bond girls in Die Another Day, but honestly no one really remembers anything about that movie except Halle Berry coming out of the ocean. Um, in an invisible car. And an invisible car. <laughs> but you have you have this the, you know, she's she's kind of just the, the the sweet girl that goes that goes on like I'm looking at here, she plays like the love interest in Jack Reacher. She's kind of the the love interest in the uh, the world's end. She doesn't really do she hadn't really done much, and then all of a sudden she was a love interest in Barney's version and then Gone Girl where she is a complete psychopath and just completely blows every perception you may have had about her out of the water and shows that she legit is this insane actress that has this huge range that you never knew existed and uh, and that's catapulted her career for the rest of the decade um, I still want to see her latest movie that just came out, I think, on Hulu, Radioactive, where she plays Mary Curie. Um, but um, some of the more recent films I haven't seen, but I've heard great things about A Private War and her performance in that. Anyways, uh, Rosamund Pike in Gone Girl is, yeah, just comes out of nowhere and completely unexpected. Yeah, that's a movie of a lot of great unexpected performances, like Neil Patrick Harris, Tyler Perry, William Miller. Emily Ratajkowski, not so much. That was very expected, but there are some unexpected performances throughout. Isn't isn't William, like the two cops in that movie, Todd, isn't it it, uh, William Miller and, um, and Minkus? Oh, man. I don't remember, but that's awesome if that's true. I'm pretty sure the two cops in that movie are William Miller and Minkus. I think I've only seen that movie one time, actually. I do need to revisit it. Yeah, I've seen that one a couple times. Alright, Zach, number two. Okay, so if we're not going to go with Uncut Gems, I have to go with a Safdie Brothers movie that made me really rethink this actor's trajectory, and that is Robert Pattinson in Good Time. Um, I think by now in 2020, we know that Robert Pattinson is actually a really good actor because he was uh, really good in in The Lighthouse and Damsel in uh, the movie where he was in outer space with a box with Julia Pinoche that I'm blanking on. Todd, what's that movie? High Life, Uh, that's it. Yeah, Yeah, High Life. Um, 
But uh, I think back in 2017, we still thought of him as Team Edward, unfortunately. Um, but you know what? You want to you want to resurrect your career. You want to win the Independent Spirit Awards. Then go to the homeless Ju- the homeless rabbis, Benny and Josh, and they will make your Notice career. Notice the safety brothers. And uh, Robert pa- Robert Pattinson in Good Time. He is you know I recast um, Adam Sandler as Al Pacino. Robert Robert Pattinson definitely ch- channels Al Pacino in Good Time. He is amazing in that movie. He is like frantic. He's on. He feels like he's on Ritalin. Um, he's on something. He's on definitely some sort of druggy high in that movie. Uh, he is I think pretty unrecognizable from um, the uh, the the Team Edward movies. And uh, he pulls off the the axis, the the urban um, accent really well, and uh, he's dynamic in that movie. And and you're wa- when you're watching that movie, it's like you're watching a star in the making. And uh, I think again now with the benefit of hindsight, we know that he's actually much more accomplished than his early his early films would have uh, indicated. But uh, he was mind blowing when I first saw that movie. So that that performance was very very unexpected. And now he's Batman. And now he's Batman. Back to the don't, don't forget back to he, the paycheck. Don't forget he was also Cedric Diggory in uh, in Harry Potter. Oh yeah, it was a that, Goblet of Fire. Goblet of Fire, yeah. Yes, you know what's really funny is watch some of Robert Pattinson's YouTube uh, interviews, like circa 2012 when he just trashes Twilight and everything that is Twilight. I mean, he trashes the filmmakers, he trashes the cast, he trashes the writer. Um, It is so clear that he absolutely, totally wants to distance himself from Twilight and thinks the movies are as crappy as we all know they are. I think it's interesting that you have Twilight and you also have the Hunger Games that cast these really talented young actors and actresses that end up making something much more of themselves, and then they're like, oh, crap, we're stuck in this franchise, though. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I actually think Kristen Stewart, I, I don't know if anyone's going to pick Kristen Stewart, but I think she's made several movies this decade that are were also very unexpected if you were looking at sort of the early trajectory of what her career might have looked like. <clears throat> yeah. It's just too bad right, Divergent Todd. didn't do that for Shailene Woodley, because she still is stuck. <laughs> Yeah, it's true. It's true. All right, Todd, number two. Uh, my number two, the movie has also been mentioned, but not the not this performance, and that is John Cena in Trainwreck. And <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not a fan of professional wrestling, and I don't even like John Cena, and I'm not even a fan of Amy Schumer, but Trainwreck is one of my, like, favorite, like, surprise hits of the 2010s, and he is awesome. He has this, like, smaller role where he plays this guy, Steven, who uh, Amy goes out with, but he's, like, struggling admitting to himself that he's gay, and... Like, he's, like, really funny, but he's also really vulnerable, and uh, pr- professional wrestlers don't ever get the, the chance to actually act in their movies, but he acts his ass off, especially in the scene where they're, like, breaking up on the apartment steps. Like, he is awesome, and I, I never thought I would see that from in any professional wrestler, especially John Cena, but it, it is a great performance, and it's a small one, but it's great. Zach That's apparently disagrees. He's call. laughing. <laughs> No, I I love that that call. Doesn't he say, "Dude, I'm not a roided up Mark Wahlberg." Like uh, he's he's great in that movie. I I totally agree with that pick. That's a good one. Thank you. And he's actually a decent actor too. I mean, he's, he is absolutely. I, I could see. I mean, he's definitely I think got the career trajectory of like a of like a Dwayne Johnson. Like I could see him being like that big action star coming up. That 
And I think even Dwayne Johnson, if you give him a dramatic role, he could do something with it. He just likes the paycheck. I mean, you realize, Todd, that you put him above Robert De Niro on a movie performance list. That That's impressive, too. And Jonah Hill. <laughs> and, and Mila Kunis. <laughs> yeah, this is the who's who of my actors, apparently. And then I have John Cena. <laughs> yeah. All right, number one. Time for number one. Number one! And my number one is actually a tie. I... Oh. I kind of had to, and but it's it's a tie because it's two performances from the same movie that were equally unexpected, which is part of what made this movie so amazing. I'm going with Steve Carell and Channing Tatum from Foxcatcher. Oh, that nice. is so not surprising. I knew you were gonna, I knew you were gonna pull that. Um, I mean, so first you got Steve Carell, who I mean, this is. I'm trying to think. I mean, this is near the end or at the end of the run on The Office. It's it's after The Office. But, I mean, he's still the comedy guy. He's the comedy legend. And he dons this ridiculous nose and this crazy accent to play John DuPont, um, who is this, you know, this heir of these this empire that ends up, you know, becoming this murderer. And then you've got Channing Tatum, who is, you know, the the Hollywood hunk that you ugly up as much as possible to turn into this quiet, reserved, Olympic uh, caliber wrestler. Uh, I was so blown away by how crazy both of these guys were. It made me so mad that Channing Tatum never got any love for his role. And in that way, you could say that his was more unexpected. But I think Steve Carell was equally unexpected. Um, Mark Ruffalo got an Oscar nomination for it. But Mark Ruffalo, I mean, he's a chameleon. He can do anything. And and he shows that he's Mark Ruffalo in this. But Channing Tatum and Steve Carell, just completely out of the park as a dynamic duel of unexpectedness in in Foxcatcher. And I, I always have to bring it up. I first saw Foxcatcher... It was a part of my favorite day at the movies ever. It was a, a, a quad feature I did one day um, over over Christmas break. It was Whiplash, Birdman, The Imitation Game, and Foxcatcher. And uh, this, this one was by far the most surprising and unexpected of them all. So that's my number one. That was back before you had kids, right? That was back before I had kids, yeah. <laughs> I was thinking of Foxcatcher for our Mount Rushmore also. Like that, that's a movie that really was under the radar for some reason. It got Oscar nominations, but that that's a great movie. And especially crazy considering Bennett Miller's career. I mean, he did Capote, then he did Moneyball, and then he did Foxcatcher. I mean, these are three movies. The first two get nominated for Best Picture. He doesn't get the picture nomination here, but he gets director. Yeah. What's he doing next? I, I'm curious to see what, what he comes out with next, because he's one of those under-the-radar, just makes great movies that are unheralded. It's him and, him and Spike Jones, I think, are in that same that same category. But Spike Jones is in a completely different universe. Like, literally. I think he's in a different universe. <laughs> Touche. Alright, Zach, number one. Okay, so my number one um, made me kind of reflect on this past decade, 
And at first, I was really thinking about two of the great actors we lost this decade, which were Robin Williams and Philip Seymour Hoffman. And two of their last performances were Boulevard, which I think we've talked about on this podcast. I know Todd is a big fan of it. I, I think it's a great movie, great performance. And Philip Seymour Hoffman, one of his last great performances was A Most Wanted Man. I choose to think of that as his last performance, not uh, The Hunger Games. Um, so I pocket. thought about... Or God's Pocket, exactly. I haven't seen God's Pocket, but... Uh, Probably not that great. Um, so I thought about having them as a tie, but then I remembered another actor who died this decade. We lost him way too soon, and his last role was, or maybe I should say one of his last roles, was in a movie that was really completely against type and just showed his versatility um, that I think we all kind of knew <clears throat> about but didn't actually see realized until this movie, and that was James Gandolfini and Enough Said, which I actually think is a really good movie from this decade. Um, sort of an underrated movie. Kind of got dismissed to serve a chick flick. But, uh, you know, if you had said that James Gandolfini would be the leading man that was sort of caught in a quasi-love triangle between Julia Louis-Dreyfus and Catherine Keener, I don't think a lot of people would have believed that premise going into the movie. Um, not only, you know, this, this leading man, but also a guy who has really ugly feet and uh, doesn't eat properly, doesn't take care of himself. But, you know, after watching Enough Said, you can absolutely see the charm of James Gandolfini. He's, like, such a sweet guy. Um, he's like a teddy bear. I mean, that's what everyone always said about him. What's sort of interesting about this pick is if you do watch, like, behind-the-scenes features of The Sopranos or even Enough Said or other movies that he did, everyone always talks about what a really sweet, gentle, calm, kind of quiet guy that he was. Total opposite of Tony Soprano. And uh, I think he, he, he shows it here. So in some ways... This most unexpected performance is probably the most expected performance because from what Julia Louis-Dreyfus says and others say um, about Enough Said, this was James Gandolfini uh, being the most himself he ever was in a movie. So, uh, again, playing completely against type, but totally a great moving performance, and uh, it's sad we lost him. He was a, truly one of the greats. James Gandolfini in Enough Said. That's a really good I have pick. not seen that movie, but I yeah, I, that's what I've always heard about that movie too. So that is a Terry movie. You got to see that movie. It that it's a really really good one. I also haven't seen Good Time yet, so there's a couple on your list I need to see. All right, Todd, number one. Uh, there was always going to be my number one, and when you if you would say James Franco is going to be in a Harmony Harmony Corrine movie, it would sounds interesting, but we were not ready for <laughs> Alien. James Franco in Spring Breakers has got to be number one. You know, I got Scarface on repeat. Look at my nunchucks. Like, he pours his heart out playing the piano, singing Britney Spears every time, and you're just, like, spellbound. It's like, what the hell is going on here? He's got cornrows. He's got gold teeth. He's got more charisma than that movie deserves. And he honestly almost got nominated for an Oscar for a movie that critics and audiences hated. And but I mean, but it cleaned up at the Critics Awards because he is that amazing. And I don't know that Franco will ever do anything like that again, or that he actually can. I don't know that anybody can. It might be the highest war of the decade. Uh, I mean, I I still am just in awe of that performance and um, how ridiculous. I mean, yeah. I mean, it had to be number one when when I heard the list. It's like it's it's Franco, obviously. Spring break. Spring break for life. Spring break. Look at my <laughs> shit. I mean, who sings Britney Spears that, like, like with that much passion, and and makes you actually believe it, with girls dancing around wearing ski masks with DTF on their ass. I don't even think Britney Spears sings with that much passion. 
Absolutely not. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, great call. Now, that really brings up the question whether Spring Breakers should have been on our most unheralded movies of the 2010s. Will people remember that as a great cinematic masterpiece? I feel like there's a chance. I think it's in the same category as The Tree of Life, honestly. I I feel like it was... Or Mother. Or Mother, yeah. Completely misunderstood. Definitely dismissed and hated by audiences. But (laughs) I think we might look back on it differently. All right, well, it's time for honorable mentions. I actually had James Franco on my honorable mentions, but I had it for 127 hours because I thought that was quite unexpected when it happened. I, um, I had another another duo in my honorable mention, and uh, it's one that was... It's an actress that was mentioned already, Kristen Stewart and Dakota Fanning in The Runaways. Nice. I mean, this was in the middle of Twilight, and all of a sudden they're going to go out and play... She's going to go out and play Joan Jett, and this is also the first time we saw Dakota Fanning as, like, an adult actress. Um, and so that was a great one. Uh, Daniel Radcliffe is in uh, Swiss Army Man. Um, I mean, turning him, he's, he's a boat that can propel himself by his farts. I mean, this is Harry Potter. What? <laughs> yeah. Um, talking about, like, established actors playing against type, Daniel Craig and Logan Lucky was ridiculous um also julianne moore in uh kingsman the golden circle uh as a you know uh grinding up human human beings to uh make into her hamburgers in her diner in the middle of nowhere in this random village she started um my runner-up for uh for oscar winning unexpected performances was matthew mcconaughey in dallas buyers club and um, the last two I just have to mention, uh, Robert the Tire in Rubber was very unexpected. Yes. And, uh, and of course, Alice and Janney and Margaret. Of course. Of course. Of course. <laughs> Ding. <laughs> uh, all right. Zach, honorable mentions. Uh, okay, so I had Andy Garcia in City Island. I had Kristen Stewart in the... The Olivier Assayas films that she made, Clouds of Sea C- Maria and uh, Personal Shopper. I had Uma Thurman in Nymphomaniac Part 1. James Fr- uh, McAvoy in Split. My Meryl Streep pick was Ricky and the Flash. I think she's actually great in that movie. Sort of an underrated movie. Jason Segel in End of the Tour. Rooney Mara in Girl with a Dragon Tattoo. I, uh, I'm shocked that Todd didn't include Michael Sarah as Player X in Molly's Game. Come on, Todd. you got to bring up I your game I have a different Michael Sarah in my That's honorable a- mentions. <laughs> Okay, that's a good call. And then I also had a dishonorable mention list. Um, I had Russell Crowe and Les Miserables, Kate Winslet, Halle Berry, and Hugh Jackman's neck testicles in Movie Forty Three, <laughs> Denny Levant in Holy Motors, Robin Williams as Dwight Eisenhower and John Cusack as Richard Nixon in Lee Daniels as the Butler, and Donald Trump as President of the United States. Dis- <laughs> d- dishonorable mention, most unexpected. <clears throat> I, I think it's safe to say that at the beginning of the decade, unexpected moments is, yes, Donald Trump being elected president was a very unexpected thing that could happen. No matter what you think of the man, I think he, I think that's a good call of unexpected things, yes. All right, Todd, honorable mention. Uh, I have quite a few. It's weird how many movies and actors are mentioned and I choose different roles. Uh, I have Blake Lively in the town. Uh, Nicholas Cage trying to kill Osama bin Laden in Army of One. 
I, I mean, that was as weird can as you get. Can we get a podcast episode about that? <laughs> I, I, I could try. Uh, Michael Sarah in Magic Magic, which was as weird of, of anything I've ever seen him do. Jared Leto in Dallas Buyers Club. I, I, I don't think I ever expected that. Uh, and then you got uh, Dwayne Johnson in Pain and Gain, Kristen Wiig in The Skeleton Twins, Ryan Reynolds in Buried, and then Kristen Stewart in playing a stripper in Welcome to the Rileys in like 2010. Like that was that was the step out that I saw for her. And Robert Pattinson's one was The Rover, which I think think he's amazing in. A couple that I didn't even know they were in the movie: Michael C. Hall showing up in Game Night, and Christopher Lloyd showing up in Piranha 3D, basically playing Doc Brown. Uh, you got uh, bad performances that I didn't expect. Justin Long in Tusk playing, like, the walrus or whatever he is. I don't know. Jake Gyllenhaal in David Russell's Accidental Love. And Eddie Redmayne with that horrible accent in Jupiter Ascending. I also have James Franco and Anne Hathaway hosting the 2010 Oscars. And Ooh, good call. <laughs> all of our num- true number one in our hearts, Kyle Heck at Terry's Bachelor Party, Rapid Gold Digger. Yes. <laughs> I, that good call, good call. Shout out Kyle Heck. Wow, <laughs> pulling from the archives. Oh, uh, wow, yeah. That was unexpected. That was very unexpected. <laughs> that was the most unexpected pick on the list. <laughs> All right. If it was a movie, because it technically and actually isn't a movie, <laughs> it would have been a number one. <laughs> All right. Well, it's time to try and predict Adam's list. Adam, our uh, Adam Daly, our Almost Sideways contributor, host of uh, of the Daily Notes series on the Adam our, on the Almost Sideways podcast. Uh, you can find him uh, at Adam Sideways on Twitter. I'll just throw it all out there now. Um, anyways, my predicted five for him: uh, number five, James Franco, 127 hours. Number four, Jonah Hill, Moneyball. Number three, Channing Tatum, Foxcatcher. Number two, Chris Pratt, Zero Dark Thirty. And number one, Rooney Mara, Girl with Dragon Tattoo. Zach, what do you got? Okay, I went number five, The Rock for Pain and Gain. Number four, Chris Pratt for Zero Dark Thirty. Number three, James Franco and Spring Breakers. Number two, Steve Carell and Foxcatcher. And number one, Neil Patrick Harris in Gone Girl. That was his number one last time. <laughs> He's going to repeat. That is the most unexpected repeat. thing. Okay, got All it. Right. I got He's going to be f- unexpected in, in doing that. Got it. Okay. <laughs> number five, Rooney Mara in The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. Number four, Dave Bautista in Blade Runner 2049. Number three, Hugh Jackman in Movie 43. Number two, Sylvester Stallone in Creed. And number one, J.K. Simmons in Whiplash. All right. So let's look at Adam's list here. He said, I had a tough time uh, with this list, so I had to break it down into some categories, and that's what he's going to go through here. Uh, first, dinner, his dishonorable mention is the uh, special effects team that tried to remove uh, Superman's mustache in Justice League. It's mm. a, a good call. Yeah. Cause that was horrible. It was really bad. A lot of people are excited for the Snyder Cut of Justice League to come to HBO Max. I think it's still going to be a crappy movie. Yeah. Uh, number five is number five. Number five his category is unexpected child performance. Oh, I think he did. He looked at this a little differently. Anyways, Brooklyn Prince, Florida Project. 
Uh, child performances are always hit and miss at times. However, Brooklyn knocked this role out of the park. She broke my heart at the end of the film. Honorable mention is Jacob, Jacob Tremblay in Room. Yeah, I think, I think when we saw Brooklyn Prince, you know, as a five-year-old, we weren't expecting that. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. And I think looking at this, he's looking at it more of just like someone that came out of nowhere and gave an un so unexpected in that way came out of nowhere instead of someone that's doing something you're not expecting number four unexpected first time performance uh yeah then this is different uh <laughs> crap he's gonna make me pronounce this agata turbukowska in ida her okay. only film role was so powerful and was one of my favorite performances from 2013. Once I watched this film at the Grand Cinema, I texted Todd and said that it that I just watched the Best Foreign Film Oscar winner. Her performance was breathtaking, and her honorable mentions are uh, or his honorable mentions are Haley Seinfeld in True Grit and Roman Griffin Davis in Jojo Rabbit, which are also child performances. Adam, <laughs> anyways. Number three, unexpected athlete performance is Kevin Garnett in Uncut Gems. Uncut Gems doesn't count, dude. Come on. Because, yeah, that count, yeah, we, all of Did us could have said Adam Sandler won Kevin Garnett, it. too. Yeah. I don't know. I probably forgot. Uh, I can't picture another basketball player playing in this film. He's electric in this film, and acting seems to come natural to him. His honorable mentions are John Cena and Trainwreck. Todd, you might have just won trivia or won this game because of that. Uh, Clay Matthews in Pitch Perfect 2 and Dave Bautista in Blade Runner 2049. Hey, no. I actually have one that's on there. <laughs> hey. Man. Yeah, I think Todd totally won, unless something crazy happens here. Okay. Number two, unexpected voice or special effects performance. Seriously, Adam? Come on, man. At Andy Serkis, Dawn of the Planet of the Apes. How is that unexpected? He had already done King Kong. Seriously? But this is a different monkey, so this is very unexpected. What? Come on. That's the worst pick I've ever seen. Truly one of the most underrated actors of the decade, that I'll agree with, but this wasn't unexpected. When you deliver a performance that has fans demanding an Oscar nomination, you know you're doing something right. Unexpected. I almost put Andy Serkis on my list as an unexpected in uh, Black Panther, because I thought that was pretty unexpected. Mm. Anyways, that 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 just sucks. Adam, you suck. That's a horrible pick. <laughs> honorable that's mention. It's a horrible pick. Uh, <laughs> that's a horrible pick. <clears throat> oh look, the the guy who's great at motion capture just did an another another maz- amazing motion capture. <sighs> honorable mentions are Scarlett Johansson and her, Ben Wishaw in Paddington Two, and Will Arnett in the Lego Batman movie. That's not unexpected. He played him in the Lego movie. <laughs> All right, Sir, uh, dude. Uh. You should have explained the rules right. to him yesterday. Number... Exactly. I, I, you should lose a point, Terry. <laughs> this is this is nuts. Num- number one, I should I should define the word unexpected for him because apparently he doesn't know what that means. It's like, oh, someone someone played the same role they played in the first one in the sequel. That was unexpected. Number one is his unexpected performance that received no award love. And that is Jake Gyllenhaal in Nightcrawler. 
He's always been a great actor, and he was acting on an entirely different level. He's brilliant and scary in the film. He was not... Uh, how is this not an award contender? Well, it got nominated for screenplay, that's, so... That's actually a good pick. That, that actually pick. sort of fits our list a little bit, more, more than yeah. the others. Jake Gyllenhaal, like, that, that, like, set Jake Gyllenhaal up for being the chameleon he's been for, like, the last... For this whole decade, almost. Yeah, I was thinking about um, him in that and in Prisoners. Like, both of those were ones that I was considering, so... I, I like that picture. His honorable mentions are Shia LaBeouf and Fury, um, Ryan Gosling and Blue Valentine and Drive. I thought about saying him in Blue Valentine, but it felt a little too much like his role in Half Nelson. Um, Andrew Garfield in Silence, Lupita Nyong'o in Us, Ben Foster, Leave No Trace. You can't say Ben Foster is unexpected. <laughs> He's Ben Foster. Like, you can't pick a chameleon and say this is an unexpected role. Um, and Michael B. Jordan, Fruitvale Station. Well, I guess that received no award love. We'd never seen him before. Well, no, we'd seen him before. I guess that's okay. Anyways, Todd obviously wins because he actually got something, and there was an honorable mention in his list and in his predictions, so. Uh. That's my 22nd win. Terry has 15, Zach has 13 and a half. I think Adam gets negative one. Seriously, Andy Circus doing motion capture was unexpected. I, I'm, I'm at a loss. I'm at a loss. All right, it's trivia time. Are you ready? Well, let's hope so. Oh, I forgot about this. John Boyd is a slap in the face. This is going downhill quick. Trivia. Todd won last time. He's hosting trivia. Zach and I have some movies to uh, to talk about. Zach, I'm going to let you go first. Okay, so uh, the movie I had to review is a movie that Todd has been telling me about for a long time, pro- quite possibly the last 10 years, and uh, that is Sonicsgate, the documentary about the uh, the truth behind, as I read on IMDb, the truth behind the sup- the Seattle Supersonics' tragic exodus after tw- 41 years in the Emerald City, directed by Jason Reed. Um, obviously, this is a movie that I will never understand to the same degree that both of you did, because you both grew up in the greater Seattle area. I did not. I grew up as a Portland Trailblazers fan, um, so I will never understand the hurt in the sense of betrayal that uh, went through that process. Um, So that being said, the documentary is a pretty interesting look at uh, just all the really up shit that happened um, that precipitated this kind of unexpected move in the late uh, 2000s. Um, The real problem, um, I feel like after watching the documentary, isn't so much about Howard Schultz making a terrible decision and selling off the team to Clay Bennett. The real problem that I think the movie should have elaborated a little bit more on is the the notion that private ownership in uh, sports is just kind of a, a bad model for how uh, prof- how professional um, athletics should operate. Uh, you can't have these millionaires and billionaires at the top echelon of these sports franchises that are asking their communities to uh, bail them out through um, bond measures to uh, you know renovate their stadiums, like what happened in Seattle in the mid two thousands. 
um, but then also expect a sort of public trust in the process as well. And I think we've seen a lot of examples of this. Um, the biggest one probably being Oakland from the middle of this decade. You know, the, the, the bond measure in Oakland to pass the renovations to the stadium um, has basically completely devolved and it's, it's robbed the city not, of, not just of its franchise, but also of um, financial sort of control. Um, as for the documentary, though, um, I do have to say, as much as I agree with uh, the points that the documentary is making, and I think it's an important subject, and I think that, you know, it, it's worth exploring, um, I feel like this is a really sort of basic documentary in terms of its aesthetics. It feels like it was done in uh, Final Cut Pro or iMovie back in 2009. Some of the visuals are uh, astonishingly bad. It's like they got screen grabs from a Google search, and they didn't even bother looking for a large image. They are like fuzzy and, and really low quality. This is the kind of stuff that I would teach my high schoolers to avoid. Um, I feel like some of the interview, I mean, obviously there's an agenda to this movie, but do you really need to stick it in when you uh, basically call Clay Bennett fat and having bad hill, hair and then playing hillbilly music in the background and then show a picture of Seattle Mayor Greg Nichols um, eating a hot dog to make him look really bad? Uh, that is the kind of stuff that I think undermines the integrity of this movie. Um, this filmmaker is, I think, a, a astoundingly amateurish, which is kind of amazing given that he has uh, access to people like Gary Payton um, in this movie. I watched the two-hour director's cut of this movie, and when I say director's cut, I was hoping for more salacious material, like maybe Sean Kemp in an orgy with one of his, uh, you know, 10 baby mamas or something like that, or maybe Russell Wilson giving an F-bomb. Sadly, I did not see any of that. I saw a movie that was way too long, and, um, you know, we don't need a 30-year history of the Seattle Supersonics uh, in the first 30 minutes of this movie. I get it. This is a this was a franchise that was beloved by its city. Let's get to the scandal here. And there is a real scandal um, in this movie. So, unfortunately, I have to give this movie sort of a thumbs down because as good as the content is and as good as the argument is, the aesthetics of this movie and the sort of self-indulgence and, like, the interviews with the, big, with the, the biggest Seattle sports fan, Big Low, I mean, give me a freaking break, man. This movie deserves better content than that. It deserves a better treatment than that. So I reluctantly have to give it two and a half stars, even though I feel the city of Seattle and I feel the, the anger and the hurt that they feel. And Clay Bennett is a Republican Oklahoman asshole and I get it. But this movie should have been, I think, a lot better. Let's raise the quality up a little bit. Give Seattle, if they can't get the basketball team they deserve, they at least deserve the outrage documentary. So this wasn't quite it. Well, it was still fresh when the when the movie came out, but I mean, I, I like I mean, well, Big Low is a big deal in Seattle. Like he, like they show him on every Seahawks game at least twice, every every telecast holding up his sea fence signs. But I mean, I, I, I love the passion that the movie had. I, I, Sherman Alexi is like a huge Sonics fan, and I mean, I, I I love his interviews, and that's sort of the way everyone thought. It's like. So what's next? Are we just going to wait for another team to uh, to get ripped away from their city, like the Pacers or the Grizzlies or whoever? I mean, I guess that's what we have to do to get a team back. And that, I mean, that sucks. I mean, I that movie really stuck with me, though. It was near my top ten of that year. Well, of course it did, because it's close to your heart. I just think that as someone who's not from Seattle and never had a personal stake in, in, in the Sonics, I feel like this is an important story that gets undermined by the director's incompetence as a filmmaker. Well, I think it was <laughs> this is like a movie. fan video. It, it, yeah, it's a like it's it. a it's a fan cut, you know? It just it, it needs it needs a better treatment. So I actually haven't seen Sonic's Gate yet, but I know the, pretty much the whole story. Um 
I would say the biggest travesty of it all is Clay Bennett after moving the Sonics to Oklahoma City, which also, you know, is like um, Stern's last last uh, approval, last movement as as commissioner. Clay Bennett ends up becoming the head of the relocation committee in the NBA and single-handedly like shuts down the sale of the Sacramento Kings to Seattle, mm. single-handedly shuts down the sale of the Milwaukee Bucks to Seattle, um, and makes sure it's like, oh, we can't let this happen, when that's exactly what he did to get his team, and he just doesn't want Seattle to have anything ever again. And, yeah, Clay Bennett is the worst. I'm going to say he's the worst uh, owner in all professional sports. I mean, I think the real villain in this story, and Todd, you can chime in, but I feel like the the mayor of Seattle is was a terrible piece of shit in this process. What's his name? Uh, uh, Greg Nichols. I mean, he basically yeah, accepts the the package that uh, Clay Bennett gives, and and the movie indicates that had uh, even had the judge. Um, ruled that they were in violation of their agreement to pay out Key Arena and that they had to play those home games for the last two years, then Clay Bennett would have ac- actually uh, dropped the whole move because of the economic recession in 2008. I think that's a, that's a compelling case. But I think this movie has a really interesting point, which is there's not a lot of economic incentive to have major fr- sports franchises in cities like Seattle, which value intelligent people live in Seattle. It's a great city. They value their, um, you know, uh, schools. They value sustainability. So um, a sports franchise like that just eats up money when you, when you have greedy owners uh, like Howard Schultz. So I feel like this movie actually should have been more about the greed of owners and less about uh, people like Big Low. No offense. All so you're respect. saying there's a good move. There's a good movie about this topic to be made, and this isn't it. By by a competent director, but I do feel the pain and the anguish, and I'm sure in twenty twenty ten this movie would have uh, riled up a lot of people uh, justifiably. However, you guys did win a Super Bowl this decade. Let's let's be clear, and you have the greatest quarterback of all time, and and Russell and and, and Danger Us. So you know, I feel like that's sort of a consolation prize. And our baseball team has the longest playoff drought in all of North American sports. So, Well, see, that was the thing. In 2008, the, the Sonics left. The Huskies went 0-12. The, the Mariners lost 100 games, and the Seahawks were 4-12. It was the worst year of any city's sports in the history of sports. That might be fair to say. And plus, Seattle's a great city. Who wants to live in Oklahoma City? Come on. Like, everyone would choose Seattle over Oklahoma City. So, so you win just by living in Seattle. I've been to Oklahoma City. It's it it is it, it is terrible. Never go there. There's a reason why Durant doesn't play there anymore. All right, let's uh, let's move off of uh, our ranting about the Sonics. And uh, I, I still say to this day, when people ask me who's your favorite basketball team, I say the Sonics. Yeah. I, and and I, I I never I never really bought into the whole Sonics Blazers rivalry. So Blazers were always my second favorite. So I'll watch the Blazers now, but. It's still the Sonics, and they say, "Oh, you mean the Thunder?" And then, no, no. And when my kids ask me in my classroom, it's like, "Who's your favorite team?" And I say, "The Sonics." They go, "Who?" And that just makes me sad, because it's been too long. Nobody knows who the Sonics were anymore. They were hardly even All right. alive. Yeah. All right. Uh, the movie Todd had me watch is uh, from 2008. It's called "What Doesn't Kill You," uh, uh, directed by Brian Goodman, written by Brian Goodman, Paul T. Murray, and uh, Donnie Wahlberg. And starring Ethan Hawke, Mark Ruffalo, Brian Goodman, Amanda Peet. Donnie Wahlberg's in it, too. 
Um, this is a movie about two best friends, played by Hawk and Ruffalo, that grow up together and are kind of the muscle for uh, for this guy who runs a bar. And go, they go around, they uh, they uh, you know shake down guys for their money and things like that, and that's how they've been earning their living for their entire lives, basically. And um, and as as this movie is starting, I'm looking at him like, okay. I, I see why Todd loves this movie. It is the perfect Todd movie in that it is a Boston crime movie. Therefore, it's a Todd movie. And uh, for the first half of the movie, that's what it is. You've got you've got Mark Ruffalo doing Mark Ruffalo things. You've got you've got Ethan Hawke being the poster child for overacting um, in this movie. You have uh, Amanda Peet, who is somewhere in this movie. She's somewhere between um, Lorraine Bracco from Goodfellas and Adina Menzel from Uncut Gems. Like, if you smash those two together, you get Amanda Peet in this movie. Um, you've, got, uh, you've got Donnie Wahlberg, who uh, I think this is... Um, he's the detective that's kind of following things around. And he this is like... Um, this is like post-World War II Sergeant Lipton. Like, if... The, the, that's what Donnie Wahlberg's doing here. If Sergeant Lipton, like, left the army after World War II and became a cop, like, 50 years later, he would be this character. Um, and that's what it is for the first half of the movie. And then halfway through the movie, um, it goes from being just this typical Boston crime movie to being something completely different. Um, they get caught, they go to jail, and once they're in jail, Mark Ruffalo has this complete crisis of faith. And the second half of this movie is incredibly compelling and extremely fascinating as you see Mark Ruffalo, um, his character, come out, of, come out of prison, come out of this, and decide that this life is not the life that he wants. And he's got a wife, he's got two kids, and he needs to be better than that life for them. Um... It also has some very crazy scenes of him, you know, completely wasted on on alcohol and drugs and all this stuff. And he's got to be better. And he starts being better. Then Ethan Hawke is that bad influence on him. And it really went in a direction I, I wasn't expecting. And it did something that I hadn't really... I, I thought was very original and not necessarily something you see very often and um like mark ruffalo gives one of his better performances like we, we were saying he he kind of is mark ruffalo and he's a chameleon and he can do really much really pretty much anything he gives like one of his all-time great performances in this especially in the second half um he was absolutely outstanding um and it ends in a way you don't really think this movie would end um, I was, I was looking at this, the, this movie, I'm giving it three and a half stars. It's like borderline four star movie for me. Um, looking at this, this came out in 2008. It was produced by, uh, the Bob Yari company. This is the, and this is the year they went belly up. Um, and I think what doesn't kill you and a film like nothing but the truth got stuck in being, um, put out by a production company that went bankrupt the same year that they were being released and it got no um no publicity because of it otherwise i think mark ruffalo gets an oscar nomination for this 
Like, if this had any backing behind it, and if it had any type of actual theatrical release, Mark Ruffalo gets some Oscar love for this, which he doesn't get at all until two years later when he gets nominated for The Kids Are Alright. So, uh, he deserved it here. Like I said, Ethan Hawke is kind of ridiculously overacting, but I guess it kind of works. Uh, apparently it's, it's loosely based off of Brian Goodman's childhood, um, in Boston. Um, I will say it was kind of weird. It, I mean, it's partially based off of someone's childhood. It's a fictional story and a fictional story that takes itself seriously. That has a, where are they now at the end of it is, I, I don't know that that was kind of weird, but, uh, but yeah, three and a half stars. It's it. I started it, and I'm like, okay, I know exactly what this movie is. And it completely flipped itself on its head, and I really, really dug it. I really got into it. It was amazing. So thank you, Todd. Yeah, well, I'm glad I'm glad you saw that the first time. Because the first time I watched it, I think I gave it three stars. I liked it because it had a lot of things I like about it. But I've seen it probably a handful of times, and it's now in my top ten of that year. And, yeah, I, I echo a lot of what you said. I think Ethan Hawke is awesome. Yeah, he's overacting properly, but it's still, I mean, it's a great, like, coked out Ethan Hawke role and I I, I mean I, I love what he does in there but yeah it's even a, though he's the sober one in it <laughs> right but I mean I, I've never <laughs> seen him with that much energy before <laughs> it's not a good thing it's not a good thing <laughs> yeah I'm glad I, you, you haven't seen it Zach have you no but I know the ending of nothing but the truth because you told me <laughs> right exactly well, and, and as I'm watching, like, how, how have I not heard of this movie? And it's like, oh, and the opening credits happen. Bob Yari, 2008. That's why I haven't heard of this movie. It's the same thing with Nothing But The Truth. These movies needed, you know, some backing to get some awards love, and they got nothing. It got one nomination, like, total. Um, Mark Ruffalo got a satellite nomination for uh, Best Actor. That was it. Yep. It deserved better. Okay. It's trivia time, Todd. What are we doing? Uh, well, we're going to start out with one where I'm going to do one person at a time, and then I'll bring you back, and we'll do another category with both of you. So I think I'll start with, Ooh. since Terry liked the movie that I gave him, I'll start with him. So, Zach, uh, unplug for a little bit. Okay. So we're going to one of, uh, one of our uh, categories that we do sometimes. We're going to 1990, and we're looking at the Oscar winner's birthplace and birth year oh gosh okay so the uh best actor winner was jeremy irons so give me uh give me your guesses on where where and when you think he was born uh jeremy irons i'm gonna say i'm gonna say 1945 in Cambridge. Okay, I'm not really sure exactly where that is, but should it's I in England. Yeah, should I tell you where what what the where it is? Let's let's wait. Let's just wait. Okay. Release it. Re reveal it all together. Yeah. Okay. Uh, okay. So Kathy Bates won Best Actress. Kathy Bates. I'm gonna say. 1957. In. El Paso, Texas. Okay, Joe Pesci won Best Supporting Actor. I'm going to say he was born in Brooklyn. I'll go with that. Um, gosh, he's like, he's over 80. 
1938. Okay. And Whoopi Goldberg won Best Supporting Actress. Whoopi Goldberg, I'm going to say she was born in Chicago, 1961. Okay. So we're going to bring Zach back and we'll, we'll do him and then I'll let you know who gets the points for all that. Okay, Zach. Yeah. All right. So what we're doing is we're doing the Oscar winners year of birth and place of birth, and we're going back mm. to 1990. Oh, okay. So we are starting with Jeremy Irons. London. And what year? Oh, year? Uh, 1943. Okay, the correct answer was 1948 in Cow- Cowes, England. So I'm gonna have to figure out London. I said I said Cambridge. Yeah. Uh, so Cambridge to Cowes is 154 miles, and London to Cowes is 93.5 miles. Yes. Oh come on! But I got I got the year because I said 1945. Yeah, so you said 43. You should get one point for that. All right. Okay, uh, Kathy Bates. Oh, that's a tough one. Um, I'm going to go Dallas, Texas, 1950. Okay, it was 1948 in Memphis. Whoa! In Memphis? So, He's closer. Yeah, because that's... I said, I said El Paso. Yeah, so that'd be further away, yeah. So, Zach gets both points for that. Yep. Uh, Joe Pesci. New York City, 1943. It is 1943 in Newark, New Jersey. So, I, Zach is I think, the point. I think it's a... Yeah, you guys got what was the, at the same city. You said Brooklyn. Yeah, I said Brooklyn. He said New York City. So What did I say for the year thing. on that one? 1938. Oh, yeah. Okay, so Zach is up 4-1, to one, and we go to Whoopi Goldberg. Whew, okay, Whoopi Goldberg, New York City, 1961. Okay, you both have the same year. Uh, it, was, <laughs> it was 1955 in uh, Chelsea, New York City. So Zach, Gosh, Zach so he gets point. that. I said Chicago. So we are at a 5-1 to one lead for Zach. Yeek. But we have a lot more points left over oh, because I decided to pull out something from our website. So we put out, at one point, our top ten of the 1990s, probably when we first started our website. <laughs> oh, wow. And we are going to try to figure out all of the 25 movies that are mentioned in our top twenty-five or top ten of the 1990s, or any of the three of our lists. Uh, if you get one that has is on multiple lists, you get as many points as the amount of lists it's on. So 25 movies worth 30 points. So so there are so the three of us. So out of 30 spots, there are 25 movies represented. That is correct. Gosh. Okay. And it's going to take you back because, like, I'm sure these lists have changed a lot since then. But this is what is on our website yeah. when we first put out these lists. Yeah, I think I think we put these out sometime like right after 2010 ish is when these came out. Okay. Okay. And since I started with Terry, I guess I have to start with Zach, even though Terry's behind. Okay, I'm going to go with Goodfellas. 
Goodfellas is on two lists. It is my number two and Zach's number five. Uh, Forrest Gump. Forrest Gump is Terry's number one. Uh, Leaving Las Vegas. Leaving Las Vegas is Todd's number one. Titanic. Titanic is Zach's number ten. Uh, I didn't make my list? Good grief. Schindler's List. Schindler's List is Zach's number three. And Wayne Terry's number three. I was going to say. <laughs> yeah. So 10 to 3, Zach. Um, uh, Paul 13. Paul 13 it. is Terry's number two and Zach's number two. Uh, Pulp Fiction. Pulp Fiction is my number eight. Shawshank Redemption. Shawshank is Terry's number four. Fargo. Fargo is Zach's number one and Terry's number ten. Oh, that's not correct oh, anymore. <laughs> does Fargo? I mean, Fargo it's a great movie, count, but though? Not I mean, if Fargo one. doesn't count on on our podcast at all. Oh, it counts. <laughs> what that's is your list? <laughs> I it wouldn't be Fargo, but um, I do love Fargo. Okay. American Beauty. American Beauty is Terry's number five and my number four. Uh, the War Zone. 13 to 8, Zach is up. The War Zone is Zach's number nine. Uh, Silence of the Lambs. That is not on a list. Oh, gosh, dang it. Zach, do you have any more? Uh, Jackie Brown. Jackie Brown is not on a list. So, the ones that you guys did not get were Terry had Usual Suspects, number 6, Green Mile, number 7, L.A. Confidential, number 8, Saving Private Ryan, number 9, Zach had Crumb, number 4, The Man in the Moon, number 6, Bridges of Madison County, 7, Contact, number 8, I had Goodwill Hunting, 3, Before Sunrise, 5, Glengarry, 6, Hoop Dream, 7, Quiz Show, 9, and Boogie Nights, number 10. I was going to say Quiz Show, dang it. So, Zach wins 14 to 8. Yeah, I had no business winning that. I did horrible. (laughs) Uh, You're the one that put that screen up on our website, too. (laughs) I thought you'd catch up. (laughs) Yeah, 10 years ago. (laughs) All right. It's uh, time to wrap this up. Quote of the day is... Strawberries. Not the cheese. Womack. With a little sex in it. Quote of the day. Zach, you're first. You won. Okay, so my quote comes from a uh, disclosed private emails between the Oklahoma City uh, owners group of of the Sonics back in the late 2000s. And it was addressed Tom Ward to Clay Bennett. He says, is there any way to move here for next season or are we doomed to have to have another lame duck season in Seattle, to which Clay Bennett responds, I am a man possessed! Exclamation mark. We'll do everything we can. Thanks for hanging with me, boys. The game is getting started. I'm sorry if that brought up some trauma, but that was maybe the most hilarious part of Sonic's Gate, was those horrible emails. 
I mean, uh. the, the, <laughs> yeah. There, there's no more proof of corruption than that. <clears throat> All right. Yeah. There's nothing left to say about that. All right. I'm going next. Uh, I am uh, quoting here. So number five on my power rankings, I talked about Will Forte. I'm quoting uh, Will Forte from SNL. One of his best characters was, uh, and it's it's timely for this year. This is a, a, a presidential election year. And it always takes me back to when Will Forte was on SNL and he was playing Tim Calhoun, uh, who was running for president. And he would pop up on, on Weekend Update and have to read straight from his cards. And he would say, I am Tim Calhoun and I am running for candidate for president for America. And then he would say some random things about about himself and uh, uh, things like, I've been in jail. It's not important how many times, but if you must know, let's see, one, two, 31 times. And then uh, the best one, though, that I found was, I propose that for scientific testing purposes, we breed a type of midget even smaller than the normal midget. We can call him Shetland Midget. So. <laughs> wow. Just one of the great, great things. At one point, he switches the card and he goes, there's nothing on this card. And then he switches to the next one. It, it was the most awkward and uncomfortable and amazing that Will Forte was. Much better than McGruber. I never saw it. Oh, it's good times. All right. Todd, what do you got? Uh, so mine comes from Spring Breakers. It's a quote from Alien. Uh, and he says, I'm Alien. My name is Al, but truth be told, I'm not from this planet. And I feel like that describes that movie pretty well, and maybe this podcast. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> we are out of this world. <laughs> All right. Well, on that, we're going to draw this podcast to a close. Thank you guys so much for listening. Make sure you subscribe, rate, review. Uh, make sure that uh, you tell everybody else about us. We'll be back at you next week uh, with more content. Until then, have fun watching movies, and we'll catch you on the flip side. Despite your crass behavior, I'm glad we were able to do this together.